Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name's David Parker. David, when you first heard about this movie, did you also think it was about killing animals in the forest, but with pure intentions? Ooh, <laughs> no, no, I, I had no idea what to think when I heard goodwill hunting. I was like, <laughs> are they hunting for, you know, positive emotions? Or... <laughs> and then it... Well, that didn't even occur to me, but that's a good interpretation, too. <laughs> yeah, that, I... was, that was my first, actually... Embarrassingly enough, like hunting very, for goodwill. Very recently, that was what I thought uh, it was meant oh. to be. So, so you thought the word hunting was a descriptor Not, for goodwill? Yes. Whereas I thought goodwill was the descriptor for the way that they, they were, were hunting. hunting. Exactly. Just shows the English language is complex <laughs> beyond our wildest dreams. Yes. Today we are going to be talking about the 1997 film Goodwill Hunting, directed by Gus Van Sant. And written by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, actually. Probably, I guess, one of the major movies that thrust them into the spotlight. I mean, they'd been in a couple of movies before then. But. And I think this was the first movie that either of them were involved in in, in this capacity. And sure. both of them went on to do lots of movies like that. Yeah, that's true. So this movie, yeah, when it came out in 97, I would have been 10, I guess. And I remember hearing about this movie when it came out because it had a lot of buzz and I had a lot of acclaim for it when it was hitting theaters and i remember not really thinking about it but hearing the <laughs> hearing goodwill hunting and thinking like they made a movie about like going into the forest and hunting and like i was kind of old enough to have a general sense of what the term goodwill meant yeah so i was like well <laughs> that sounds so boring like they're going into <laughs> the woods to go hunting but with a positive attitude <laughs> and <laughs> like like a very humane form of hunting where they make sure that they get every deer right through the heart, so it dies right away. I don't know. But probably at that age, too, uh, if someone actually described to you what the movie was actually about, you would have been even more bored. Yeah, I suppose that's true. <laughs> so there's but, a guy. But I think I And he's still... really good at math. <laughs> yeah. But nobody thinks it. And he's at a hard pass, so he's got to go see a therapist. <laughs> yeah. True. I, I wouldn't have... I definitely wouldn't have been more excited of no. the actual <laughs> description. Probably less, I would I would think at least. Maybe at that, less, but at that I, age I would have been less excited. I guess I would have been at least more believing that that kind of movie would get made. Right. True. <laughs> then True. I would have been that my interpretation was correct. But yeah, I I always remember I just so, have a f- So for all those directors out there, you should probably <laughs> make a movie about, you know, really positive hunting experiences <laughs> or <laughs> revel in the joy and importance of having a uh, ambiguous movie tile based on emphasis of 
direction and context and meaning in the words. Exactly. Because <laughs> again, like the interpretation you gave is a well, that was that a was, third way to even think. You know, about I don't it. even think that I knew that Will's last name was Hunting until this most recent time I watched it. I wonder. I mean, this is definitely something that uh, no one on this podcast will ever spend the effort to go look up. But obviously, they have to know Goodwill Hunting how the last name Hunting is going to be grammatically coherent. I think. I think. Term. It was, I think it was purposeful. It had to have yeah. been right. Oh yeah. Because why not <laughs> Goodwill Jones, <laughs> right? <laughs> or or Goodwill. Sanderson. Even then, right? even then, the good and will together just can confuse you. It can, but at least. But then, if it's Jones, it's true. General, then... like a smorgasbord of last names that wouldn't be. It's true. Confusing. I think, to this, a I think it was intentional. I think it was intentional. Uh, yeah, I mean that was an. That's a very idiosyncratic critique from my past, but. Past oh. Luke, <laughs> I was not sure what to think about this movie. What does present Luke think about this movie? Um. Let's see. I like. I obviously didn't really watch this movie when it came out. I definitely wouldn't have been allowed to. I probably watched it the first time when I was maybe, I don't know. Uh, it could be a range of eighteen to twenty-four. Like I have no idea when in there, but I definitely did watch it somewhere in there. And I don't. I think I've only the second time watched it for this podcast. And this is an interesting movie because I both get why it's so popular. And still kind of wonder a little bit why it's so popular. I have a bit of an ambiguity. Uh, like the deep moments of this movie are very deep and interesting and very provo- thought-provoking. And Robin Williams more than, more than earned the Oscar that he got for this. And yet, and I'm totally willing to be talked or educated more maybe on this point. I am a little bit unsure why this movie became the cultural touchstone that it did for a generation, other than that it's just great writing and good acting. I thought, I guess because of all the acclaim this movie still has to this day, and don't get me wrong, I really liked this movie. And isn't it funny, every time you mention this movie to almost anyone, they're like, oh, that's a good movie. It's almost universally praised. I don't think I've ever said... Have you seen Goodwill Hunting to someone that said, yeah, and they're like, didn't really like it? Yeah, that's true. I, I think, again, like, this is not intended as a critique of this movie because I do think that this is a really good movie. This movie, Goodwill Hunting, often gets discussed um, with the same exuberance as people might talk about a movie like Schindler's List or even a movie like Saving Private Ryan or Shawshank Redemption. Or Shawshank it's often Redemption. mentioned, I'd say, the same. Like these, these, especially these 90s movies that just are timeless classics, you know? And I, I just, I guess I, I don't know, like I can't, and it's not as I don't want this exactly, but I can't shake the feeling that it's, it's not quite as good as those other movies. And yet, it's still considered to be as good as this movie. And like, that's neither here nor there, really, because this is still obviously a movie worth talking about. Uh, and I, the parts about it that I like, I really like. I just, it didn't seem quite as grand as I remember everybody telling me it was, but I still really liked it. Like, I kind of wish I... Maybe it, you I, went I, in with higher expectations. Yeah, yeah. well, I kind of wish I lived in a universe where no one had ever told me about this movie before, like even before when I see it the first time or know how important it is still to people now. Because I think I could have been just, oh yeah, this is a really, really, really good movie and I love it. I don't know. 
Like that's just kind of how I think about it, but I still like it. So <laughs> it's a, a really mealy-mouthed criticism, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you're, there's no teeth to it. How do you how do you criticize this movie? Like it's like just not quite as good as everyone says, but it's still really good. <laughs> I really really like it, but you know, there's better. I don't know. Like I get it's like it's just a purely it might pull up people's intuitions just slightly where they're like, yeah, I do like this movie, but I kind of know what he means when it's, it's given a little bit more in our culture than maybe, maybe it deserves, but like only a smidgen. Right. (laughs) Okay. Well, I agree with that analysis, but (laughs) it's really not not important. not pertinent really to what we're trying to do here. (laughs) No. So, uh, Sorry for ah uh, shoot that means I wasted everybody's time on accident and I and I have a promise to myself that I only ever waste people's time on, on purpose. purpose. Yeah. Yes. So I'm really sorry about that to everyone to the extent that that was accidental on my part. I promise to only make you listen unnecessarily with full intent from now on. But there we go. <laughs> what do you think about the movie, David? Actually uh as you were saying that I feel the same way. I think I've seen it probably three times now. And the first time I saw it was uh, with someone I've mentioned in the podcast before, Kendall Grant, who kind of introduced me to cinema as an art form as opposed to just entertainment. I think the reason that it is so well-loved is that it comes across as really deep and profound, which I think it is in a lot of ways. But it does it in such a way that almost anyone can, uh, can relate to it. And I think it would even deeper sense we see this with the old archetype of the you know the princess and the pauper wasn't the prince and the pauper or is the princess and the pauper? well no it is the prince and the pauper but i just oh, mean the, more the like actual book is the, 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 yeah, i mean aladdin mind. we've talked sure. about aladdin this yeah. is a this is aladdin set yeah. in a, in modern day yeah rags to riches R- rags to riches but he kind of deserves the riches and you know he is the best guy, guy. Yeah. he's the smartest he's the you know but he has this, these inner demons. In Aladdin's case, it's insecurity. In Will's case, it's past trauma. Yeah, no, you're you're right. That that's a totally apt connection. What I thought about when you said that, though, is that I, I for okay, I will say for Good Will Hunting is that since it's not an animated Disney movie, they do have much more sophisticated overtones to his character that they're able to flesh out more with. A movie like this, and they did in Aladdin. No, they're they're, right. they're for, but it's it, some of it seems feels a little ham fisted. Do you know what I mean? Like he's not just a genius; he's the smartest genius ever, right? Yeah. And he's not just you know unsuccessful. He's like been abused as a child, and and like all of these things. They're they're kind of like plucking at the heartstrings pretty hard. Oh yeah, and he falls in love with a girl who lost both of her parents. Right? right. Like, yeah. So there's like, like two a, orphans finding each other. Yeah, there's like a limit case. Basically, every scenario is the limit case for them. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, and it turns out that, you know, his psychologist has gone through trauma himself to a really so deep a, level. there's a deepest level of empathy that can be had that no one else can have kind of thing. Yeah. And th- while the therapist is, you know also a genius he's you know forsaken the path of the ivory tower and gone into the you know <laughs> into the community colleges to teach yeah to to be with the real folk <laughs> like, you know i think that sure yeah. for me that's my only criticism of this film i would say like you said the acting is incredible mm-hmm. the emotions conveyed awesome but i mean we talked about star wars on the this. dialogue the dialogue the dialogue's great. great we talked about star wars on this podcast too 
there's things about Star Wars that we felt were maybe not right, but that doesn't matter because we were able to immerse ourselves in a world that taught us lessons and, yeah. and gave us something beautiful. And I think maybe in the context of what we're trying to do here, we, we became more analytical than experiential <laughs> of this film. Well, for those of you who haven't seen this movie, this is a movie set in Boston in, I think, the time period it was released the mid-90s kind of thing. Well, they're talking about war over oil, so it's got to have been... Yeah. Then or the... Yeah. Like, maybe the earliest, like, 92, 93 kind of look to it. And Matt Damon plays Will Hunting, the main character, and, you know, basically the story rundown is that he's a janitor at... Is it Harvard? MIT. MIT, right. He's a janitor at MIT. There's this kind of unsolvable math problem on the blackboard of one of the professors or no the professor puts it out in the hallway to see who can solve it but no one can but this will hunting janitor solves it but he does it you know at nighttime when no one's around and so everyone's looking hunting you might say (laughs) for this guy and they kind of find him he gets exposed as the genius they try to get him into all these jobs he kind of self-sabotages everything because of all of his internal pain and trauma based on uh, he's an orphan and in foster homes and foster being abused homes and all that stuff. Homes. He kind of goes through all these therapists and makes them look pretty stupid, actually, until he gets Sean, who is Robin Williams' character. They um, initially, obviously, have tons of tension. Then they bond. Then there's all of the kind of ways that Will's personal life, the, like the ups and downs of that, given his kind of volatile character and his on not able to trust like this isn't a very plot driven movie as much as it is like kind of just will's experience in the world and what that can that what that makes us feel like watching him go through all of the things that he does to others and to himself that are really negative and yet still be cheering for him to kind of come out on top at some level and then the end of the movie is he does leave. He does progress. And it's because his friend Chucky, played by, I think it's Chucky, played by Ben Affleck, tells him to kind of thing. And I think that's all the Yeah, there's not, not. Stellan Skarsgård is in this movie, too. He plays the um, professor who discovers Will's theorem or proof, I guess, on the blackboard. Uh, Mini Driver plays Skylar, the love interest. Ben Affleck, Casey Affleck's in this movie, and Robin Williams, of course. And just, you know, as a, again, an acting aside, like, this was the movie where um, it was very clear that Robin Williams was an actor's actor. In case it ever wasn't before, but, and he probably did other dramatic roles before this one, but I can't really remember any. A little bit before my time, if they were. This is the first one I remember him in a dramatic role being like, oh my gosh, (laughs) like... He's not a comedian in no, this yeah, movie, this you is, know? This is incredible, yeah, yeah. And so that's kind of the launch pad of where this movie begins. Yeah, absolutely, and I think we're starting with Will and talking about Will. Yeah, he's I, just a regular guy, you know, he plays baseball and he drinks beer, like he's one of these, he comes from a, I think the south part of Boston, they say, like a really blue-collar type of guy, blue-collar type of neighborhood. So I guess anyone could be a genius. Well, Is yeah. that lesson one of this movie? Yeah, you, you never know where you're going to find them. You know, diamonds in the rough, right? Yeah, I mean, the thing that was first interesting is that he was, he seems like at the beginning of this movie to be like embarrassed a little bit about his intelligence. Well, yeah. Or, I think or he it, like tries to hide it or suppress it, especially around his friends, right? 
I think they all know that he's really smart, but he he wants to be one of the guys. He doesn't want to be different, right? Because and I and the sense that I get is that these friendships mean a lot to him, and even. Sean Robin Williams' character says to him at one point, "No, they're family. Like these guys are his like brothers, not in reality, but in well, I guess in a greater metaphysical reality than biology." Mm-hmm. Uh, and his love for them is very obvious. But a big part of it is he feels like he'll he's fa- found this, and it seems like he didn't have a family, he didn't have people who loved him, and now he's got these guys. And he doesn't want to lose that because losing that means that he loses the one group of people that have loved him in his life. Yeah. And it just occurs to me now, intelligent, like a, a gap of intelligence is something that can really distance you from a person. Oh, 100%. In, in your interpersonal relationships with them. It's one of the hardest things. And I think uh, one of the scenes that I love in this movie is actually when uh, Sean is talking to the professor. What's the professor's name again? I don't remember. The <laughs> professor, uh, yeah, <laughs> the, the professor who finds uh, Will and and is trying to like get him on this path of becoming some mathematical genius. And they're sitting, and the professor says to Sean, "He's like, well, look what happened to you. Like your life is a failure." And and Sean just like sh- like shut the fuck up. Yeah. Like, who are you to judge my life? Mm-hmm. And like. So often... Because they were roommates. They were roommates in university, yes. And so often in life, people who are insecure take their successes and build an identity around those successes. And that identity separates them from the people who are... like makes them better. But I really think that's an insecurity thing. But also, what you were saying about intelligence, it is just difficult to care about the same things when you're on different levels of intelligence. True. Yeah, just there's concepts that people are not going to be interested in. Mm-hmm. But there's something that I've thought about a lot. How much of it is intelligence and how much of it is not being introduced to these concepts? Well, that's a hard question because as we find out later in the movie, Will has read vociferously in his life. Probably more than anyone else in the movie. Right. Like. And so if we want to say... There was no reason for Will, I don't remember a point in the movie, where there'd be more reason for Will to be exposed to these high-brow books and thoughts and ideas any more than anybody else in his neighborhood, and yet he still does the work of reading. But I think it's the retention. His ability to retain is obviously astronomical compared to, like, it's, it's, out, it's out of this world. Also, I think he even in his conversation with Skylar, where she's like, how are you this way? And he's like, well, the best way I can explain it is, you know, when Beethoven looked at a piano, he just knew how to play it. Yeah. When I look at these concepts, I just understand them. And I think, like, I think of people with dyslexia, or I think of people who have learning disabilities, reading for them is a lot harder and retention. And then think about people who have bad memories. I have uh, people in my life who've like said, I just can't remember things like you do. Yeah. And then that makes reading and, and connecting ideas less interesting, mm-hmm. right? Because you're not thinking about things <laughs> in the same way, right? Like you're sure. not taking some concept that you remember from this other thing you read and applying it to the, to what you're reading now because you're, just don't remember. Yeah. Well, it sounds to me like you've actually answered your own question there. Actually, I guess I have, yeah. Right? Because you, with the way you're saying it, just his natural state of retention makes the concepts easier for him, and it's not like an exposure thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because if you exposed 10 books to Will and 10 books to Chucky, 
and Will retains nine of them and Chucky retains one, they both got the same level of exposure. And yet Will is just, you know, eight books ahead of Chucky. Yeah. So it's, it's at least it seems like in the movie, it's just, it is something, and I mean, I'm not an expert here, but something maybe genetic in his ability to just remember and to do things well and to like comprehend these unbelievably unfathomable math equations and physics equations that he's able to. So, yeah, I guess it's interesting, though, to think about how, like, he does seem to really, he does still thoroughly enjoy the things like drinking beer and playing baseball in the same way that the other guys do, right? The really kind of, like, day-to-day friend stuff. It doesn't seem like he's doing those activities just to placate them. No, no, I think he does love these still things. still really into it. And so, and I think there's multiple psychological reasons for that. Yeah, like, but and the, but so I mean, this is a good <laughs> opening into trying to peel apart Will's psychology in this movie because it is Will's psychology is probably the most fascinating part of this movie, especially for me. I'm a psychology nerd; like I just love learning about how the brain works and how he. It it seems like like the first way you could describe Will is that he seems. Like he wants to not talk about or emphasize or give any credence to this huge part about him, which is his intelligence and his ability to read and his ability to know so many things around his friends or around people of his neighborhood, because I think he has, and and, and I think this is a justified reading given a lot of his insecurities later in the movie, I think he has a kind of at least subconscious fear that if he in some way starts to go down a path of taking advantage of his intelligence in some more tangible ways or some kind of meaningful ways, he's going to alienate his friends so that he won't be able to have the same relationship with them to do things like go drink beer and play baseball. Well, let's let's t- you know let's take this to another uh, degree. We know he's uber intelligent, right? We know he's beyond not just average intelligence, but beyond average genius. So he's probably worked out that if he goes and pursues these other things, that, that friendship is largely a result or an outcome of proximity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that the less time you spend with people, the less time you're actually going to be, a cl- or the cl- less close you're going to be with them. And again, I'd like to reiterate, love is so important to him. And the only place we see that he's comfortable, that he feels most loved, is with these guys. So to give that up which he realizes he probably would be doing by pursuing this. He wouldn't be working with them every day. He wouldn't be living near them. He'd probably be all over the world. Who knows where he'd be? He wouldn't see them as much. Yeah. So he knows that by pursuing this other thing, he loses what is essentially, I think, most important to him. Mm-hmm. And definitely physically. Like, that. that's almost a guarantee. I mean, and that's the end of the movie, too, is him moving away and be physically distanced from his buddies. But I also am also I, I think I'm trying to point out too that this is a psychological phenomenon too. Like even like you could be in the same room as someone and be, as it were, thousands and millions of miles apart if you've distanced psychologically. If you've distanced and part of the way that that happens or can happen, I guess, and I think it's the way that Will is fearing that it's happening, is that if he and you can do it a little bit 
you can get away with it a little bit, I guess. But if you do it too much where you make it clear that your intellect is on a different plane than the people you want to be friends with, there is a, I guess, how would you even phrase it? There's a implied and inferred gap of potential reciprocity in life where if I'm Will, and again, I think this is an unjustified, in the final analysis, this is an unjustified way to think about it, but I can understand the perspective where Will would think that if he shows his true intellect and true intelligence to his friends, they're going to feel inferior. So they're going to feel like they aren't worth, in some level, They'll maybe they'll have it manifest by saying, oh, you're just a goody two-shoes or you're a you're too smart good for us, you're or... smart ass, like you think you're so great. But I think even if, but into the, so in Chucky and um, I can't remember the guy who Casey Affleck plays, but the scenario where Will is so above them in intelligence, they feel inferior, they let that manifest by ostracizing him a li- little bit out of the group. Will is preemptively predicting all of this, not showing his intelligence because he doesn't want to lose the other parts of his friendship with Chucky and the gang with baseball and beer and all the other things that they do. And yet to do that means Will has to suppress a major component of his own soul, which is his intelligence, his ability to do these math theorems and his ability to understand the, some of the smartest thinkers in history. And all of this, I think, is really warp is what at the start is warping Will's ability to know what to do about anything. Right, where, where like he kind of does his theorems, he writes the theorems on a board just kind of out of passing curiosity. It's not. It doesn't. Well, seem- also because like I think no, there's more going on here. I think because there's that chip on his shoulder. Yeah, there's a chip. He on wants his shoulder. to show everyone how smart he is because there's that moment where Sean is like grilling him and he's like, "So you could have picked to be a janitor anywhere, right? Why did you pick him? Well, yeah. So okay, there's that other component too. If he wants to show maybe everyone in the university or MIT how smart he is, but not his buddies. Like he, like there's some people it's okay to show your smarts to some that's not because you don't want to lose that. And I, I get that impulse too, because I feel like I've done something like that in my life too, where I will be out and someone will say something that really makes me think about something like a famous philosopher has talked about, or like, Oh, that reminds me of this really cool thing that I read about in, you know, one of Stephen Pinker's books or something, right? And there's a feeling I have where I bring that kind of thing up at a group in a social setting, and in a group of eight people, seven people's eyes glaze over kind of thing. Yeah. And they're just, like, not interested. It's, at some level, it's boring, or it's not their jam kind of thing. And so I shouldn't have brought the toast, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, because they don't, and, they, you know. And so what I had started, what I have done, and, and I probably still do this, is that I will be in a social setting, I will think of something, but I won't say it because I know it will probably not be common knowledge. And the thing is, I fear people probably do this too. Like it's the things that you don't say because you don't want to seem too smart. Or you don't want to seem too, whatever it is that keeps social relationships at a kind of equilibrium, like a slightly discordant equilibrium that, that you don't really need in like the MIT setting for Will, because it isn't, there isn't like a pretense of, I don't know, what would you say, like friendly equality 
Right. That okay. They, that okay. They have so with the I want to I want to dig into this and and get at what I because I'm I'm struggling a little bit trying to are you because I think it's pretty common for the lowest common denominator to rule in, in almost any group setting, right? In the sense that people don't want to be reminded of like people's egos are incredibly fragile. And so like, and so people will make fun of other people, like you said, for bringing up someone like Steven Pinker, if they don't, if they don't know who Steven Pinker is, right? Then you don't want to be ponytail guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Either, right? You don't want to be look stupid because you don't know anything about it. But I wonder sometimes if that is egotism on our part, right? Where we're, we're so consumed with the, the things we care about that sometimes we don't reach out to other people. Oh, definitely. Right. And our, and, and, and you're right. It is sad that people can't. I think one of the saddest things is when someone brings something up that they really care about, and another person just smacks it down. It's like, well, that's boring, or that's stupid, or why yeah. do you care about that? Like, it's one of the most it, revealing things about another person. I, I often say to people, and I've I've had people say this to me: the most interesting thing to me in all of the world is is someone being passionate about something. Yeah, I have sat for hours and talked about the lore of a video game with a friend. Right. And just they've just told me mm-hmm. about how much they love this this world that's been created. I've also sat and like talked for hours with people who love playing magic cards and the rules and how the how it's played. I love people's passion and I, I agree with you. I think it's so sad that your passion, philosophy, people are like, Oh, why do we care about that? Or that's stupid, or that's yeah. in the clouds. But I also wonder, even for myself, like for example, I love to talk about politics. Very passionate about politics. That, I care. That is for sure. <laughs> I, I care about <laughs> politics a lot, and people ought to be like, "Oh, politics, right?" Or who? Why do you care about that? Or it doesn't matter. Or everyone's corrupt. Oh, the thing you hear more than anything when you go into a to a room of, let's say, people who would uh, be relating with Will a lot, <laughs> right? They would say, "Oh, they're all corrupt. It doesn't matter, sure. right?" And 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 it's things like that where you're just writing off an interest or a passion mm-hmm. or a knowledge. Because one of the things that I want to talk about later in the podcast is intelligence versus knowledge. Because I they're two very, very different things. Mm-hmm. And I think everyone can have knowledge. Not everyone has intelligence. Well, I know what you mean. I don't know if everyone can have knowledge, but enough people that your point would stand. <laughs> like everyone, regardless of like, everyone has knowledge about something. Sure. Yeah, that's true. I think, yeah, I mean, you're right. The... The sadness of that, I think, is actually recognized by Chucky in the in the resolution of the movie. At the very end of the movie, Chucky actually, I can't remember the exact way he phrases it or says it, but Chucky basically tells Will that he's making a mistake by not following that intelligence that he has to wherever it's going to take him, even if it's not Southside Boston any longer. I think his line says, like, I look forward to the day where I go to your house to pick you up and you're not there. Well, the best moment of my right. day. You know what the best moment of my day is? When I knock on the door and I hope you don't answer. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I guess, actually, <laughs> this is maybe a little self-indulgent because it's the point I'm making right now, but the end of the movie is, in a sense, Chucky giving Will, for lack of a better term, the permission to be greater than him in this endeavor which is all of the greatness inside of wills the greatness of his intelligence and his ability to figure things out and to learn that is not what chucky is able to do but chucky gives him permission to say chucky basically says 
if you follow all of those things, I'll still love you, which I think is fundamentally what Will is fearing, at least with his relationship with his friends, is that if he follows this, his friends will just slowly atrophy away and stop loving him. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because for all his intelligence, again, the brilliance of this movie, for all his intelligence, we have Sean sitting there saying to him, you don't know what it's like, what it smells like to look when you're in the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> like, you don't know what it means to love a woman, right? And I love that because there are things that Sean has that no matter how intelligent Will is, that Will can't touch. There's knowledge, let's say. Well, he hasn't got there yet. He hasn't experienced It's not that he can't touch it. It's that he just hasn't yet. Well, okay. okay. Let's uh, back up on that. If... The subjective experience of Sean will always be Sean's and Sean's alone. Yes. And so the, despite vast knowledge mm-hmm. and incredible processing power mm-hmm. and intellect, that's the experience that Sean's trying to convey to Will when he says to him, there's nothing I need to know about you that I can't read in a book. He says, but if there's something you want to tell me, mm-hmm. that's what I'm interested in. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that makes sense. I was just interpreting more like as will grows and has his own life experiences like he could go to the system oh yeah well no experience that no and i and i agree but i think that that the profundity of what's being said there is important in that there's a humility that has to come yeah regardless of intellect yeah that's all true what is the very first thing that i noticed about will's insecurities and the very last thing of the movie that resolves that very first thing is his embarrassment around his friends and it's subconscious and i just think that that is not an uncommon phenomenon in the world and i think that one of the great life projects is how to figure out making love sustain um certain gaps of ability in particular core areas of human life between people that the reason you care about them is not actually that and i don't know exactly what that means totally no but that's a kind of a cool springboard version of it where chucky can still love will even though he doesn't understand what the fuck will's talking about when will's operating on all cylinders that's a really cool growth wisdom moment for chucky right well i I don't think chucky's ever struggled with it no, no, I no, we don't yeah. get that. I I mean, we never got a, a sense of that in the negative. I think that that end of that movie, though, is a huge step for him in the positive, though. Right, yeah. Okay, more about Will. What else do <laughs> yeah. we... Well, he starts fights with jerks. Yeah. <laughs> so he's, he is from Boston. <laughs> but he had a great line, because there's... Um, I'll talk more specifically about Ponytail Guy. I don't remember. Do you remember his name? Do they say his name? I don't think name? they ever say his name. Well, if you've seen Goodwill Hunting, you know who Ponytail Guy is. He's the big chachi fuck in the bar who's trying to make uh, all intellect. Trying to make no Chucky substance. look stupid. Yeah. Like he's using his raw intellect to belittle. And so when will show the scene where will shows him up and actually knows way more about the thing that he's talking about than him which is so funny and then i think the guy the ponytail guy says something like well i'm you know you're a janitor i'm gonna make way more money than you kind of thing and it's such a simple rebuttal but it's something that that it's it's one of my favorite lines in the movie and it sticks with me where will just says back at least i won't be unoriginal (laughs) and 
I just made a note about how I actually, this is probably the best rejoiner to any brag about money. I mean, obviously bragging about how much money you make is on its surface boring. <laughs> you For don't, sure. You yeah, don't yeah. need me to explicate to you why that is. But I like here how it's implicit here is how important it is to not actually lie to yourself about your presence in the world. Because Ponytail Guy is at least subliminally putting his worth in potential jobs that he has. But then if that's what other people like about him later, I mean, money is something important, but it can be transitory. It can come and it could go. And if your presence in the world is, if your presence in the world to you is intimately tied to something that is transitory, I just can't help but think that that it's just a trap door one day waiting to fall out from you. And I would say to not be unoriginal, as Will puts it, is a way of standing on solid ground, not a trap door that can give out at any time. And that's something that I just took out of his rebuttal. <laughs> this that. goes back to something a friend said to me at one point that I, I thought was was really profound, but um, honesty, self-honesty. This guy who's going after Chucky, ponytail guy, he's not being authentically honest with himself about where he's getting ideas. No. He's, yeah, I mean, he's ostensibly he's, doing it to, to impress Skyler. Well, that's exactly. He's yeah. ostensibly using other people's ideas to show how smart he is. And then he's exposed by Will that are not original ideas. But. That's just a lack of honesty on his part. Like he could have said, "Well, have you read this guy?" Oh, he yeah. says of this, course. which honestly it would be a way better way to go. But if he's actually trying to like authentically engage with Chucky, he's not. He's being a, a chotch, as you as you said. But I think there's a deeper lesson here, which Will is exposing in the ponytail guy, and that is. <laughs> Funny name that we have for PTG. him. PTG. 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 <laughs> so, uh, what is being exposed here is that if you're really honest with yourself, a lot of your ideas aren't original, mm-hmm. right? And how do you get to original ideas? I I, I don't fully know. I, I know most of my ideas come from other people too, but I truly believe, and I've mentioned this before, it's through combining those ideas and creating something new. It's it's, the, it's an act of creation. Oh, the the synthesis. But it's the synthesis exactly because yeah. I don't think there's actually you can just pluck ideas from from the void. No, I think it was actually. I think we've talked about it on another podcast about being authentic as its own form of originality. Yes. So even if you're like doing a cover song, if you're playing guitar or singing and you're doing a cover, but doing it authentically in your own way, there's a kind of originality in that too. Well, and people experience that. Like, let's yeah. take Jimi Hendrix's version of All Along the Watchtower. Yeah. Like, that is a Jimi Hendrix song, even though it is obviously a Bob Dylan cover. Like, and you don't have to worry about, if you're truly being authentic, you don't have to worry about copying even. Well, yeah. And I mean, Hendrix is obviously being. <laughs> In no small way original. I guess his portrayal of the song. Yeah, no, yeah. I guess, I guess what I'm saying is, ponytail guy could have been engaging with this information in such a way that he was just appreciating the knowledge that was being imparted to him. But instead, like, like Will said, he's memorizing an obscure passage to come across as 
smarter. Yeah, of course. I mean, and like to be honest, he reminds me a little bit of some people I remember in my philosophy classes. Oh yeah, they're the <laughs> Back worst. Back in the day, oh, yeah. Uh, the smugness of intellect. I like in the movie they totally nailed that. Uh, and I like, yeah, intellect without care is shallow and callous and leaves the person worse off. Yeah. And this is obviously ponytail guy. This entire setup with him is. I mean, obviously, it's to show us as the audience Will's intellect in action in a movie sense, but it's also kind of demonstrating, yeah, I just, like, I think that there is something to be absolutely avoided in just using your raw knowledge to up your social standing. I think it's so shallow. Like, I don't know. There's just, there's a shallowness to it that is so obvious to everybody else, not just Will. It's obvious to Skylar. It's obvious to everyone. And even before, because there's no humility attached to that. There's nothing, there's nothing in Ponytail Guy. Maybe he's read every economics books, but he clearly hasn't read any Socrates dialogues because (laughs) he has no conception of the idea that the beginning of wisdom is knowing the extent of your own ignorance and being kind of like hyper aware of that in every interaction you go into because it's a tempering effect on every single point you might want to make because it kind of makes you think about every angle from which what you think might not be right. Let's go back to the Promethean myth, right, of bringing the fire, yeah. right? If this if this fellow had been really, truly so smart and intelligent, I mean, intelligent. I don't know if you've had this experience. I've had this experience at bars where I probably knew a lot more about something than another person that was in the bar, and we ended up talking about it, and then we ended up having a great conversation mm-hmm. where I was able to tell them, and I, I don't know about you, but I think this is very true because you, you love teaching and talking about ideas. There's no greater joy than getting someone excited about an idea oh, that you're excited about. Right? It's a fucking crack. And that, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's like the most fun you can, yeah. you can have, I think. Shoot those ideas straight into my veins. <laughs> so, so he could have, you know, engaged and be like, oh man, you're into history. What do you think of this topic? Yeah. Here's my thoughts. That, this is what this guy said. Mm-hmm. And then. I guarantee you engage with someone in that way. You might even actually interest the girl a lot more because he's obviously trying to like <laughs> to get in there. Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, there's always a uh, a final motive <laughs> in human affairs, is there not? <laughs> Everything in the world is about sex, except except sex. Sex is about power, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> who said that? I can't remember. I why. don't know. I mean, I think I would say sex is a little bit about orgasms. Too, <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> and probably intimacy, pass, you know, and, and while genes being passed on is really yeah. what it's about. <laughs> I mean, the the secondary pleasures of intimacy and psychological connection to someone, and daydreaming, and trust and care. Those are all nice things that come along for the biological ride. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> yeah, ponytail guy, no bueno. There are a few other things about Will. Obviously, there's lots of other things about Will, but I feel like. I don't know. I don't think we would be able to do them justice without having Sean intertwined yes. into a lot yeah. of them. So I think we should probably bring up Sean. So Sean is the other main character in this movie, Robin Williams. And you referenced this a little bit earlier, but I just wanted to read the line where he says, 
what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and feel truly happy. And this is Sean describing the humble nature of love that doesn't need to brag about itself. Uh, He's got like some restraint and a slight smile to show how real it was to him. And something in the way he undersells it betrays how much it means to him. And I don't know, I just love this little sentiment I come across every now and again in life where it's almost like, I guess, for Sean, the fact that his relationship with his wife was so high level, upper echelon, full of meaning for him means he doesn't have to talk about it to other people. There's nothing in his relationship with his wife that necessitated him getting any external validation about his relationship with his wife from anyone. It was kind of so good that it was just his little secret with her, you know? Oh, man. You've hit hit onto something there. And I have kind... I mean, this is a much... Well, not a much more trivial, but less important. This is actually kind of a little bit... I've had this feeling about Canada. And it's so stupid because it was with friends. It wasn't anything negative. It wasn't like anyone being mean to me about it, but... Just jokes I got a lot about in Korea or or little barbs about like, oh, you know, those Canadians, they just want to live in the cold or, oh, you know, Canada's just... Or snow Mexicans. Yeah, it's so, so fucking cold up there. What are you thinking? Or at least in Korea with all of the other teachers there who are English speaking, Canadians can be the butt of the jokes because, I don't know, maybe we don't fight back. (laughs) (laughs) We're too nice. Yeah, we're too... Yeah. I don't know. It's just... But it's all like... It's good hearted. But there's still a part of me that, and I guess maybe it's mostly tied to complaining about how cold it is in Canada in the winter, where I'm like, it grows like this kind of soft little pride in my heart where I'm like, well, you know what? You don't have to come. Well, and the, uh, it's totally fine. And you you're like, don't you don't have know to this, be here. You're like, you don't know the secrets of the wood fire yeah. in the house and how cozy it can feel to be beside that wood fire Listening reading a good a little book. tragically hip. Yeah. Exactly. You got some hockey night in Canada on. Maybe a little hot cocoa. Yeah. And, you know, the the snow is so beautiful. And, yeah, it's cold, but that's why we have heating and we get coats and all this kind of stuff. And it feels cozy. And yet, if you've ever driven through the Canadian countryside or the, like, Canadian rural, you're just kind of blown away by it. And it's... Not exactly a best kept secret, as it were, but it's so beautiful in Canada that I guess in a way I don't, my relationship to the natural beauty of this country is such that it doesn't bother me at all if people tease me in any way about being from this country because Ah. I am just like, okay, I've got this little relationship with it that... I love that. That (laughs) is so good. And that's fine because the vitality of my relationship with the natural beauty of Canada is all I need. It's all I need. And Sean has that with his wife. And like that is maybe what love is. I don't know. (laughs) I certainly don't know, but it seems like a good contender. I love the I want to dig deeper into this whole not needing outward validation. Is there anything more rich in life than loving something and not caring whether people know you love it? No. Well, I think it's um, very freeing. Probably the most, it could be the definition of freeing because you don't have to play any role at all ever. I mean, from a psychological standpoint, you don't have any cognitive overhead. Yeah. 
you don't have any of that. Like and Sean has no cognitive overhead about you're in alignment with 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 your desires in yeah. a sense and your yeah. and it's, your emotions. It's uh, your as it were your subjective and your objective stance are in pretty good consonance. And so I mean, obviously, he would have needed to make sure that he was having things were working with her, but that was just it, right? Yeah. Like it was just her. It wasn't. It wasn't. What will people think when they yeah. see us together? Or... And you just you just get the impression that. Sean didn't need things like his friends to like her. He didn't need well, he, things. He missed the baseball yeah, game. Exactly, he didn't right? care, like he, yeah, exactly. Yeah. He, he really <laughs> didn't care. I mean, he missed a Red Sox game. And apparently a really epic Red Sox game. And I, I mean, f- for any friends from Boston, I believe that is as close to sacrilege as it gets. <laughs> is to uh, be able to go to a major Red Sox game and voluntarily not game go. Game six of a series or something oh like that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, I'll be like being in Calgary and like it's game seven of the Stanley cup finals. And I think the only thing that would be worse probably is if you, uh, maybe went to the game wearing a Yankees Jersey, that might be worse. Yeah. Cause that's a betrayal. True. At least not going to the Red Sox game is just a, what if the girl, what if the girl out. was a huge Yankee fan or from New York? Uh, well, just as an aside, there are some hilarious commercials from like 10 years ago about, they were like Boston Bruin commercials. And it was, there's this one guy, and he's wearing a Bruins jersey, and he's with this pretty girl who's wearing a Montreal Canadiens jersey, and they're <laughs> getting beers, and there's, like, this bear who's, like, the Bruin mascot just standing there, and the Bruin is, like, doesn't say anything, obviously, but he's just, like, looking at the Bruins jersey, looking at the Canadiens jersey, and the guy who's wearing the Bruins jersey, he leans in, he's like, but she's so pretty, and then he just smashes the beer, like the bear smashes the beer of the guy's head, and then the catcher's never date in the division. <laughs> and you know what, I feel like oh, that no. that sentiment can be nowhere more true than in Boston. I would imagine, yeah. <laughs> but oh. anyway, yeah, I just, Sean doesn't need any of that, and I, I don't know, that just seems like such a good idea <laughs> to put it as awkwardly as possible like that's just a when you don't need external validation for the things that bring you the most meaning the well the things that you find yourself not needing external validation for for what you're doing are probably the things, things you should keep that doing bring forever meaning yes yes <laughs> yes and that's something sean is able to capture there the other one it might have been the one that you referenced earlier the little speech sean gives him about reading versus experiencing yeah they're sitting looking over like a pond yeah they're like a park or something i loved this because you know he makes it personal while still showing will he can put on his therapist hat but it also just this is so great because obviously i I guess in the movie will's what 21 they say 20 or 21 i I, I think they even talk about he must be 20 or 20 21 or 22 because he's the same age as skylar and skylar's done undergrad and headed off to medical school yeah So right around that age. But one of the great points that Sean makes in this little mini diatribe he goes on is how he doesn't feel bad about anything that Will says because Will's just a fucking kid and he doesn't know anything. Yeah. (laughs) And you can't put it any more bluntly than that for what is happening here between the two of them. But I also, it's obviously at, and we can remember from being the age, probably age like 18 to 23, especially like the ages you're in university and you're really getting exposed to the world and you've just got all this energy and this moral energy to make the world better, which is good. Like, I think that's a positive impulse, but a lack of humility about the world is always distasteful and ugly. 
it's especially so i think and incomprehensibly so for someone who's 20 yeah <laughs> who has who is just beginning adulthood and has all these years and the thing is i don't blame people who are 20 who think they know more than they do because you just can't know that you don't know that much well yeah you're just, 20. You, there's no way to contextualize your ignorance and especially right? at that age if you're in college you are learning way more than you've ever known so you are actually at the point where you've known more than you ever have before and so it feels like you know everything yeah, <laughs> because your yeah. particular subjective stance is so much higher and yet i can almost objectively say that i think <laughs> people of that age know almost nothing because i'm 32 and i feel like i know almost nothing and yet i still have 12 years of life experience on people like that yeah and and I just, I think that, th- I think saying it bluntly, we, I, th- I think we have a culture that has a hard time, to- that would have a hard time having an adult say to a college student. You're just student, a fucking kid. You don't know anything because you're a fucking kid. Well, and the, f- <laughs> the weird part is our culture does seem to have kind of corrupted this into the, I- and I, this is a really a big issue I have with, uh, let's call it post-modernity, but it's this idea that, of progress. Yeah, And the idea of progress, meaning that the past generation can't possibly have wisdom because we've got it now. Well, I mean, if you it's, it's think about I- what progress means logically, oh, it's, stupid. it's un- unbelievably, it's, it's not just stupid, it's incoherent. Well, it's also like <laughs> against the very go- laws of nature, <laughs> entropy, not... <laughs> yeah, but I mean, even just think about how if you are making progress, things have made progress before, too. So even if the previous generation is horrible, they're still a little bit better than the one before that. But, yeah. <laughs> so- and are they? Like, oh, I, I hate this con- conceptual conceptualization. What are we progressing towards? The, like, <laughs> there yeah. doesn't seem to be a goal. Progress for progress's sake seems well, you know to be what? the... You know what? I don't know if I've ever told you this before, but one of the best demarcations I've ever read philosophically between a progressive and a liberal is that the progressive is trying to move towards utopia and the liberals just trying to get further and further away from hell. I've, I've heard exactly that and, and I, I completely agree. Oh yeah. And, the, and, the biggest issue actually with, with progressives and I, is, the, is the utopian idea, but it's not just a progressive idea, it's a very conservative idea too. The difference is the, is the um, orientation. The conservative is orientated to the past and the progressive is orientated to the future. So the conservative is, is trying to get back to the utopian past and the progressive is trying to reach the utopian future. Yeah, and I mean, of of all the reasons I could give why I think the utopian mindset is untenable, most of them are probably pretty esoteric and boring. The one that I think is the most fundamental is that I just don't think that's human nature. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which and, and we could get in. We can leave it at biology yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. We'll just say that's not how people work. It's trying to reverse the river of the human condition. But with Sean saying these things to Will, it was the first moment in the movie where it seemed to me like something was getting through to Will, other than his own insecurities and ego, where like this really hard talk, I mean, it might be a buzzword or a cliche in our say it now, but there are no punches pulled in this scene with Sean and Will. Sean just really gives it to him, but not in an unkind way, but just a very truthful way. And the part where he just says, you're a fucking kid and you don't know anything. So I'm not actually hurt by the things that on the surface seem really hurtful that you said to me. Because I think in the previous day, Will had said some pretty mean things to Sean. Well, he's basically saying that he'd married the wrong woman. And like that obviously found 
and really intelligent people are good at this find the the most painful thing you can in another person and then press that button right yeah but it's like well you don't fucking know yeah so, <laughs> so i don't care i think that i am n- in no way a fan of the way historically older people have treated younger people i think it's definitely it's the easiest form of tyranny but i do also think there is something to be said about reminding people who are 20 or 19 that actually they don't know everything. And I actually don't think it's hubristic to say that when you also have in mind that the reason I'm confident saying that to them is that I know that I am like still fucking learning new things every day. Things that blow my mind. About fi- I listened to a podcast today Sean Carroll, the physicist, was on Joe Rogan's podcast, and he was talking about quantum mechanics, and I'm just like, oh my god. <laughs> like, what the hell is this? Like, I have never even thought about these things before, and how could this work? And it just, it messes with your head. But it's new things to learn. Just new ways to think about things. And there's no, like, finality to that pursuit of learning that I think Sean, <laughs> in his Sean way in the movie, is... <laughs> giving very roughly <laughs> yeah with hard but hard words meant with care I mean the truth in love well, maybe right? as a therapist but still meant with yeah still meant with the intent to improve will yes not to take him down the scene where will's messing with the therapists yes <laughs> that yes. was so funny but it, it i it um it shows the danger too of how irony can hide real feelings oh yeah and so it remind me because he's messing with them a lot he's making jokes about what they're doing and there's a great line from nietzsche where he writes a joke is an epitaph to the death of a feeling oh man or or that that common phrase uh many a true word is spoken in jest yeah i think that might be a little different no that's it it's different but like the thing is he's being funny and he and you like you said using irony to protect himself. It has really nothing to do with like trying to improve the lives of others or even, you know, be funny. It's pure vanity. Yeah, there is vanity. But I think part of what's, again, the, to me, the most interesting part of this movie is Will's psychology. Will's psychology is, as a defense mechanism, I would say, using irony and humor so that he doesn't have to let these therapists in. And... Obviously, as we find out later with Sean, there are some really deep things going on with Will that he's not, I guess, Will probably knows a little bit about in himself, and he's really scared to have them come out. And the the whole joke as the epitaph to the death of a feeling idea is that, I guess, maybe the shadow side of humor is that it can be used to obfuscate, (laughs) I never had a hard time saying that word before, and trivialize the actual real parts because let's say you're going down a path of getting somewhere with a therapist getting somewhere getting somewhere you make a joke you derail jokes can derail a serious process between people and i think that's like the base of the basis of the instinct of like why are you joking at a time like this or why are you making a joke about this where just the moments of seriousness that are kind of needed in life from time to time, jokes make a death of that feeling. 
which is what I'm kind of sensing from Will in this scene. Yeah. Also, it's kind of done in a humorous way in that, like, there's the one guy who's doing the hypnotism, and that's just ridiculous. Yeah. And then there's the other guy who's suppressing his own... He's not being... He's obvious. I think it's interesting that the movie makes the first guy not being authentic about his sexuality, which we're given the impression that it definitely is his, his sexuality. Like one of the therapists? Yeah, the first yeah. therapist. Because the... we didn't say this. Will goes through a whole bunch of therapists before Sean. And yeah. there's like a montage scene with this. Exactly. This happening. And we, we see that really what Will is looking for is actually not someone who's more intelligent and can fix him but someone he can trust. And you actually see this in the scene with Sean where Sean's like, you you got to be honest with me. You got to or just get out, right? I don't want to talk to you. You're wasting my time. And he says, what are you talking about? I thought we were friends, right? That's really the deep longing of Will's heart is for friendship and understanding. And none of these guys are going to give it to him. He just doesn't respect them. Yeah, and how. I guess... And the respect comes not from intelligence for him, but from authenticity. Mm-hmm. And it, I guess retroactively, we see it as all really like Will's irony and cynicism in retrospect seems really tragic because of what he's actually wanting, actually which is that connection. The, the whole Will character up until the end of the movie as tragic. Oh, for like, sure. Yeah. And, and I mean, circumstantially tragic, not even a choice based tragic. No, there's definitely circumstances that place him in tragedy. I would still, he makes enough choices to put himself in it. Like he did, some of it he does to himself. Yeah, but I mean, that's, I mean, nature versus nurture, oldest, <laughs> oldest question at the time. But like how, given those circumstances, how is someone supposed to respond, right? I mean, with the trauma that he still hasn't dealt with. I mean, he talks about being stabbed. He talks about having cigarettes put out on him. You're going to have some serious psychological things to deal with. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess maybe you do need some deep therapy for that kind of stuff to get through it and move on. He still shows... The thing is, because there are some scenes where Will shows some really positive and pro-social attributes, especially with Skylar and his friends, that it just made me think, I guess, that he has more choice or more volition, maybe than we might think, given his background. Well, he does seem to be making a lot of choices, but all of his choices, if I think if you dig deep down, are in protection of the thing that's most valuable to him, which is maintaining this family that he's created for himself. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And then I wrote, Will uses Sean's words back at him. Good for Sean, too. Helps with hypocrisy. You need to be mindful of what you expect out of others and do it yourself. So, uh, well, maybe it's talking about how when they're talking about Skylar and he's saying, if you don't let someone love you, how are you really going to live? It sounds like you're not wanting to live. And then mm-hmm. and then he turns it around on Sean and says, are you ever going to marry again or love again? Oh, right. And he says, no, I've, my wife is dead. And right, yeah, yeah. That, flips okay, it yeah. on him, yeah. And flips it on him. And I thought that was good because that actually shows a little bit of maybe a little bit of incongruency in Sean's own thinking. The thing I like about Sean, though, is I think he understands that there's incongruency in his thinking. Uh, <laughs> but it's chosen incongruency. Yeah, maybe it's incongruency yeah, like he of knows, his. <laughs> he knows he's made this decision, and like this is who he is. Like he doesn't want to love anyone else. I guess. Fair enough. So I think probably my favorite part of the movie is, and it's not like a long part. 
but it's uh, Sean asked him something. Uh, oh, he asked him about friends or people he's connected to, and uh, Will says, "Yeah, he's got lots. He's got Nietzsche. He's got." And he names a few other philosophers. I can't remember who he Shakespeare. says. Shakespeare, right? So these, you know, great people in history. And I know that in the scene, I'm a little conflicted by the scene because I know in the scene, the point Sean is making is that those people are not people you can hold and love and cherish. And yet I still definitely feel an affinity to Will in that scenario where I do deeply treasure the fact that I feel like I can go wrap myself up with Emerson. Emerson, Shakespeare, Dickens, Nietzsche, Thomas Paine, Vonnegut. I mean, the list could be, is very long <laughs> for these writers. Orwell, Hitchens, the people in history that have meant so much to my growth. And I actually even have a term for it. I call it the echoes through the ages of the just these reverberations of really cool, awesome ideas and things that perennial wisdoms that come up to try and help every generation climb a little bit more out of the muck you know and so I guess maybe the the nice synthesis there is loving those echoes but realizing it's still only part or half of a good life (laughs) of eudaimonia yeah another meaningful person to me Aristotle is that reading these great people in history is something you need but not all that you need if i was going to marry the will and the sean perspectives in this because sean is i don't remember exactly maybe you can give some insight to this but sean's saying something about how only caring about those dead authors like it's very cold and they're not going to hold you well on the, dark thing he, the, the thing he says uh is that Will can't give anything to those authors. So there's no... It's a one-way. It's a one-way street. Yeah. He can only receive. He can't give. And what Sean then points out is that giving is as much of a part of life as receiving. Mm -hmm. And I actually love this concept, even on a purely intellectual... Like, you can get gummed up if all you're doing is reading and you're not producing. If you're not writing, if you're not speaking, if you're not sharing with others the ideas that you're building up in your head, then you're getting gummed up. In your thinking, because you're because you need to be able to both, you know, it has to go both ways. It has to flow through. That's that's the nature of reality is that things have to kind of move from <laughs> from one place to another. And if you're just sitting there in your head with these ideas, also you're not going to be challenged. They're not going to challenge your way of interpreting what they're saying. Yeah. Right. So I agree with him in in the most basic thing is. One of the most beautiful things in life, as we were talking about earlier, is is sharing an idea with someone yeah. and having them love that idea. Yeah, Just getting ideas from people isn't going to give you that ever. Yeah, I mean, and I guess the way that Will would be responding to those authors in his own joy of learning, there were probably people around during those authors' times that were also doing that. Yes, <laughs> so, yes. so at least one, maybe one degree removed, there are elements of will's personality type and excitement type that are what give excitement and happiness or giving something back to those types of great writers or you know right but i I think the the point sean's making is that will himself as an individual cannot give back to them no that's also very important too yeah 
I think that there, but see again, like maybe and this is why Sean and Will do end up having a really good relationship in this movie is that their problems with each other and with each other's interpretations of things are very deep and difficult, but not intractable and they do solve them, but it takes a lot of work. And so I think uh, maybe a great lesson from the movie in general is how you can marry potential what seem unbelievably disparate perspectives or worldviews if you're willing to put in the effort to yeah. do it. You know, and like you can you can learn to understand someone who's coming at things from a different perspective, and it's pretty obvious that Sean is nowhere near the intellectual ca- capacity of Will, and yet they do become friends. And not only that, arguably Sean's able to help Will through something that would have crippled him for the rest of his life if he hadn't dealt with. Yeah. Well, I think Sean in a major key and Chucky in a minor key in this movie, what they do is they tap into Will's heart in a way that no one else can. Yes. Or ever has. Yes. Maybe. Yeah. And that unlocking for Will is a whole new vista of the other meaningful part of life, which is living the heart part of life, not just the head part of life. And again, obviously, if you've listened to anything I've ever said on this, I think you can go way too far in the other direction, too. Oh, yeah. Where you're just all hard and no head, and then you're fucked for other reasons. <laughs> for, yeah. Arguably, you know? I think both of us are more worried about being too heart-focused. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. I guess it was that was a cool scene because I totally understood Will's point of view, and yet... I was able to come around to thinking a little bit more of what Sean was saying is also being worthwhile and true in that scenario without taking away from the goodness I feel from those other great writers in history who have given things to me, even if I can't personally give things back, because I think it's like a pay it forward type of thing. Like, no, I I agree that it's a, that like, I don't think that, I don't, I hope the argument that Sean is making, and I don't think it is, is that those people aren't worth reading and they're not worth understanding. They're not worth thinking about. He said, do you have a soulmate? Do you have someone who really understands you? Yeah. That's the question he's asking Will. And then Will's response is, I have these guys. Well, no, that's not a soulmate, right? <laughs> yeah. that, that's a mentor. Yeah. That's a, a spirit guide. That's, like, a, that's yeah. someone who can lead you down the path of enlightenment. Mm-hmm. But that's not a soulmate. Yeah, you're you're not maximizing capacity of what it is to be a person. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No, yeah. that's good. Thanks, Sean. Do what's in your heart and you will be fine. <laughs> Seems to me every piece of advice comes back to this. <laughs> uh, I hate that piece of advice. I just think it's such a stupid... Anyway. Well, it's a cliche. What if, what if you have something bad in your heart? <laughs> like, What if you want to do something that's damaging not only to you but to others? Well, I guess... Okay, well, I guess you could just define it as if it's a good thing, you can do with that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know? And then how do we delineate good and bad? I mean, it's just a useless piece of advice in my mind. It's lost all meaning. Do what's in your heart. Well... I think Jordan Peterson would probably rant against this too, but like, no, got to do hard things. My heart is probably to lie in my bed and watch Netflix all day sometimes. Like, sure, that's all I want to do sometimes. That well, that's not a bad thing. Not yeah, sometimes, <laughs> but like, it can become a bad thing. Yeah, and uh, if I just did what my heart wanted all the time, yeah, that wouldn't be good. Well, I, I the, the heart is deceitful yeah. above, above all things. No, you're <laughs> you're totally right. I just maybe the charitable interpretation of that cliche is that thinking about what it is that you care about most can be a way of drowning out the pretend yes. aspirations I can get and behind that. getting into the 
every heart reverberates to that golden string. Yes, like <laughs> or there's a, uh, like the sound that is actually the one worth following. Okay, we'll go to the the, the song of the heart, right? Yeah. How do you know the song of the heart? How do you determine like what I think you have to boil things down to first principles. Yeah. You have to say what are the things that I value? Yeah. And why do I value them? Definitely. And once you've done that... And Will can't do that at all. No, because he doesn't even know what he wants. Until he has breakthroughs like, with Sean. Sean literally asks him, what do you want? Will can't answer. Yeah, I know. Right? Because he hasn't <laughs> boiled in anything. He's so smart. Yeah. He hasn't boiled down to basic first principles. Not that smart. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't even know what he wants. Oh, oh, we know. He's smart, but he's not wise. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. So I have Will's negative interactions. Okay. So you have a whole... He has one quote where he says, he's talking about Skylar. I think he's talking to Sean about Skylar. And he says, so I can realize that she isn't that smart. So he has a fear of actually putting himself out there or committing to something. And excuses will be never ending if it comes to that. I'm glad you brought this up because I wanted to talk about this. Uh, His relationship with women. Uh, And the worst thing that he does, and and you see people do this all the time, is he seems to be looking for this fictional being. It's a utopian, if we're talking about, if we're making a, a parallel to, or an analogy to politics, it's, it's, it's looking for utopia. It's, it's gunning for utopia instead of running away from hell. Yeah. And he is like, well, I'm just going to realize she's not as smart, that smart, or she's not as beautiful as I think she is, or she's not as cool, or she's annoying. Everyone is those things. <laughs> Like everybody's weird, and Gordy. I love how Sean's like. No, it is the little quirky things. Like in my own life, the things that I love in remembering past relationships is those little things. Is the little intimacies that no one else really knows about mm-hmm. that you get to have with another person that would sometimes annoy you, sometimes you love, right? But it's what makes them an individual. Yeah, even in friendships, it's like so often. It's the stories we tell each other about the little things that no one else knows. Yeah. Uh, and the I quiet love Quiet things that no one ever knows. Exactly. It's the... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, well, how do you live your life when no one's looking except for, obviously, your significant other? But I, I love how Sean just beats that out of Will, this idea of perfection. Yeah, that mentality is so poisonous Oh, to the Will. pedestal mentality, because it, it can be one of two things. It can be... It can make you never want to be with anyone because no one's good enough or always treat people worse. Because well, that's why I made enough. the note, like, excuses will be never-ending if it comes to something like she's not smart enough. <laughs> or, yeah. like, what if she's not smart enough? Not even she's not smart enough, just what if. Exactly. <laughs> like, what if I learn later that it's not what I'm hoping for? Yeah. And, and you're going to be looking for it. If yeah. that's your if you're going into a relationship with that <laughs> yeah. mentality, you're done. Yeah. You're done. No, Sean definitely does his job in this scenario, but... It's kind of funny, too, because it reminds me of a song by my favorite band, Jimmy Eat World, and in their a kind of great ballad called 23, the line in the chorus goes, you'll sit alone forever if you wait for the right time. What are you hoping for? Uh, I'm here and now I'm waiting, holding on tight. But the main, the first part is important. It's like, you'll sit alone forever if you wait for the right time. What are you hoping for? No, oh, <laughs> which ah, is so kind of the line that Sean <laughs> or gives or, to yeah. Will. Well, there's city. also a, a mentality that can be, "What if I could do better?" And I think that mentality is so toxic because 
like you'll sit alone forever if you're waiting for the right time. What if you're you're waiting for the right person? You're waiting for the upgrade, right? Instead of getting well, to it's know a forever him. thing. Yeah, like there's no like you could upgrade, but then what if that upgrade's not good enough? <laughs> and like, what would it mean to upgrade? And then you just it's a vicious feedback loop that could go for the rest of your life. Exactly, because you're you're but and then this goes back to external versus internal validation. The reason that Sean had a a love, and this is actually why I think the movie is so popular is because it's a tragic love, but it's a love that you watch and you're like, I want that. I want to love someone that much. The way Sean loved his wife. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Right. And uh, the way he talks about her, the way he obviously felt about her and feels about her, even though she's never there, she's a character almost in this movie, Mm -hmm. even though she's not present. And he, loves her as a person yeah whereas i think what we're experiencing in modern day dating culture is that it's a consumer product Mm -hmm. and i know i've said this before but i it's so important that what we love in what we see that sean has done Mm -hmm. and the love that we see there you cannot do if your question is what does this person offer me yeah and like that is so bad that's just such a negative uh, life disaffirming way to think about another person. But I don't know. Like there seems to be an almost worse layer with Will where he's he's imagining scenarios with Skylar. Like he doesn't even really have a ton of evidence for his fears. No. Even, right? No, he's just like, like it's one thing. To, everyone's like, been a disappointment. To really to have it be demonstrated that Skylar isn't that smart but she is very smart she seems to show a lot of intelligence in this and yet he's still worried about that and it all comes really back down to his ego where he's like well i'm so much smarter than everyone else everyone's gonna bore me eventually everyone's not gonna be interesting and that egotism comes from well maybe in order to be interesting someone has to be like me and no one's like him so everyone's boring there's something in will that just holds him back from having something so wonderful with skylar do you think this is something people do Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, people push people away because they're afraid to be loved. For sure. <laughs> and Will knows everything but himself, hey? <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, this is, I thought it was ham-fisted, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's just something I've thought about a lot. But, like, the reason Will is doing this is because of what he's most afraid of in life. Yeah. And that's being, re- he, he, he feels unloved. He's been abused. And so he's terrified that if he becomes vulnerable like he was when he was a child, mm-hmm. that will be he'll be violated again. And there's nothing more terrifying. This goes to relationships too. Once you've had your heart broken, there's there's a few different ways to respond. But if you harden your heart and you're suddenly like, no one's gonna ever hurt me again, the result will be that you will you will miss opportunities for people to love you. Because you're pushing them away mm-hmm. because you have to because that's how you make sure you never get hurt. And he's doing that in a very blatant way, I, I think, when he has the big fight with Skylar and she says, tell me you don't love me, right? Tell me you don't love me. And he won't, and he won't say he loves her and he won't say he doesn't love her. Because the tension he's having is dealing with this trauma. <laughs> and here's the other thing that he knows probably on an intellectual level Skylar it will hurt him yeah because people hurt other people <laughs> yeah that's a that tragic fact is just built into the fabric of the world <laughs> exactly because you, yeah it's just you're gonna hurt 
the people you love. Yeah. And I think the best you can do is just not do it on purpose. Yeah. The best you can do is not do it on purpose and also ask for forgiveness when you do and like, and, and continue to work through it with the person that you love. But he probably knows that inherently and he's just terrified of being hurt. Yeah, I love that little analogy you drew earlier about how he's trying to just create his own personal utopia, which is as un- like <laughs> what's it so great is that it the personal utopia is impossible for one person. <laughs> how the fuck does anyone think it's going to work on mass? <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> can't even right? work for one yeah, can, we, we goddamn person. <laughs> I mean, it's like Citizen Kane, right? Like yeah. he gets everything and he's miserable, right? He wants to go back. The rosebud, right? Yeah. The last like little section I have is Will's positive interactions. I thought we'd end on a Hollywood. Yeah, happy let's let's note. go happy. <laughs> uh, there's a great scene with what Will and Skyler having a lot of fun together on one of their dates, and I thought that was really awesome to see. I think that there's just something so beautiful in the banter and the back and forth between two people flirting and having fun. I mean, maybe this is a weird thing to say, but I actually think it's like it was like aesthetically beautiful to see them flirting. Like flirting done well is almost oh. like a beautiful thing. Uh, I, I, okay, so uh, 500 Days of Summer, there's a couple yeah. of scenes where they're flirting and it's just like, oh man, it made my heart melt. Like mm-hmm. I love watching people really good flirting. Maybe or, this is why this and, movie's popular. And the best <laughs> In my opinion, if you want to see what I think cinematically is the best flirting of any movie ever is Before Sunrise, which is just incredible conversational flirting. Like, so good. But anyway. Yeah, I know. I could yeah. gush about We should do that movie sometime. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do Link later for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I just was, like, wondering, though, like, how – what it is about banter exactly. And, and, I, and I mean, obviously – with the uh, overlay of sexual tension, not just friendship that is on the table for Skylar and Will. I, I will say friendship banter is almost equally, in, not equally maybe, but very enjoyable. No, no, no. I, I mean, I wonder if it's that. I wonder if the promise of uh, friendship here is what makes the <laughs> like total uncertainty of if you pardon the expression the sexual dive worth it like the promise of a friendship beyond that so that like obviously just the sexual impulse itself is more than worth it for a lot of people to get rejected (laughs) to attempt but i wonder if the banter and the flirting give an extra kind of level of worthwhileness to the setting yourself up to potential rejection because of how well you get along right and how much fun it is because they like it's very clear in this scene that they're both having a lot of fun yeah like forget about if they're trying to get in each other's pants forget about like what they're hoping to gain in the future out of any of this like they both seem very lost in this moment and there there's just something so joyful about that watching it you know what i mean oh yeah there's something joyful about experiencing that too. I think definitely that's the most fun part of early relationships is you don't really know each other that well, so you just but you have fun. You laugh. Oh, I guess good. there is. Yeah, like now that I'm thinking about it a little bit more, there is a certain kind of happiness and joy that I have had in my life with just shooting the shit and fucking around with girlfriends. Yeah, like not 
with any agenda, just bantering about stupid shit as it arises. Yeah. And then just <laughs> laughing about yeah. something. Or yeah. And you definitely do that with your friends. But I think that there is maybe a different category when it's a potential romantic partner. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think there's a lot of layers to that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great scene where I feel like Will actually shows some really good courage. So he goes back to Skylar's room and says that they should hang out that night. He's gone there already and asked her to hang out. She says no. But maybe and another night. Maybe another night. So it's like she's not it's not a total rejection. It's just like, yeah, maybe another night. I just can't tonight. He like walks away and then he walks back to her dorm room and says, I really think it should well, be tonight. He walks away, does the problem that she's working on for her project oh, or whatever, right. yeah, gives yeah, yeah, it yeah. to her on a napkin. <laughs> yeah. And I just kind of, I think that there's something honorable in the little triumphs that take guts. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it takes guts to go back <laughs> to try again. Uh, there's actually a scene, there's an episode of The Office where Jim like tries four or five times to do a sale with this one guy and finally gets yeah, it at finally the end. Gets it, and you know? he's pretty pumped about he's it. He's very yeah. pumped about it. And I don't know. I just liked that, that there's a little triumphs that take guts. I like that. And it's like, so it's like, that's another good example of how there is so much positive in Will. Oh, yeah. You know, like, it's hard to, like, I think maybe if you've never seen this movie, the way we've talked about Will in this podcast, the tenor has been quite negative. But I think it's that's because he's hurt very deep in his childhood. He's hurt very deep. But when he is, again, kind of, I mean, I'm not going to compare him to Raskolnikov, but... When when he doesn't have really time to consciously go over and reflect on what he's doing, when it's just kind of in the moment, he's so charming and funny and really well, great. And loyal, like he goes after that. I don't think he goes after that guy just to like bring him down to size. He goes after him because he's going after his buddy. Yeah, no, he's there to defend Chucky. Right? Exactly. Yeah, and so I, I just love that that about him. And then there's a great scene where Skyler's hanging out with the boys. Yeah, <laughs> and a wonderful thing to see when that works and humor is the really great connector because Skylar tells that one joke what's that joke I she knew. tells again oh it's about a couple that are 50 years in oh their yeah 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 the blowjob and then <laughs> it's a good and joke then it's, it's also a physical humor because she then does the whole thing with the pop and her mouth and <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 and like and again so like she tells a very kind of overtly sexual joke as she's meeting Will's buddies. So it's just her and the boys. And it's the perfect way to break the ice with these guys. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and, these are guys who think that's hilarious. And again, and... it's showing more of Skylar. Like, I mean, obviously, this there's not a lot of this movie focused on Skylar. I think that she's, from what I remember, she, like she's got some of her own little insecurities going on. But well, she she's seems, an orphan. and Yeah, but she seems very comfortable in her own skin. And I yes. loved that. Yes, too, she's about very her. comfortable in her own skin. You know, yeah. that was, um, again, why it was so fucking mind-blowingly crazy to me that Will is just saying things like, well, what if she's not smart enough? Like, it's like, this is so obviously a woman <laughs> worth jumping into the pool with to see if you guys can swim together or yeah. not. <laughs> yeah, <know>? yeah. <laughs> And then this will probably dovetail into what you want to talk about with wisdom and knowledge. But I love at the end of the movie where Chucky's being a really real friend and telling him what he thinks. And 
so like this is the scene where Chucky's where Chucky says, Every day I hope I knock on your door and you're not there. That'll be the best day. And this actually takes Will off guard, right? Because he He's kind of like hurt a little bit. Well, he's, he's like, hurt a little bit, but he's kind of surprised that this is Chucky's opinion. Because I think I, I think at one level he's surprised because Chucky's his friend and presumably Chucky would want him around if they're buddies, right? But also I think one of the reasons Will's a little bit caught off guard is that this is actually unbelievably thoughtful. Yeah. <laughs> like Chucky's synopsis on this is really deep and really thoughtful. And I mean, as the audience, we're not given a ton to think that Chucky's capable of this level of thoughtfulness in the movie. We're given a little bit, I guess. But Will seems surprised too when Chucky's saying this to him. And this is where I made my note about the difference between wisdom and knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> because what Chucky in the little the scene where Chucky is saying to Will, no, I'm hoping you go because it's going to be better for you. And that's actually what I care about is thoughtful and wise. And yet Chucky is not a book smart guy, you know, but he even he he's still capable of this level of insight in a way that ponytail guy never would be. Yeah, I think um, the well, disassociation between knowledge and wisdom. They're not the same thing at all. <laughs> like, you can be, ha, there's an old song my mom used to uh, sing to us. You can be smart about all kinds of things and be dumb, dumb, <laughs> dumb. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think, yeah, like, for me, I almost think wisdom is a lot better than knowledge. Uh, and I think wisdom starts, like Socrates said, with the acknowledgement of your own ignorance. But it's more than that. Wisdom is experiential. Knowledge is bandwidth issue, right? Or or you can pursue knowledge and you can gain knowledge. But pursuing wisdom and gaining wisdom is probably better because you can know a lot of things and not be able to properly process it and not be able to synthesize it in a way that's of any value. You can just spout off facts all the time. But yeah. like, what good is that if you're not synthesizing it into a helpful truth that you can give to some if if you're not making it into that promethean flame they're giving it to people that will actually give them some value this is what i never understood about i understand it on a sociological level of bonding and tribalism but like memorizing sports facts <laughs> like i get it i understand why people enjoy it and 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 sharing in that camaraderie but like what does that knowledge give you other than that, I guess. Well, and I, and I'm not. I know you do that. No, do I mean, that. I, I, well, I, I think, I think that's a fair question. I also think I can answer it. Okay, good. I think, good. well, as a kid, it was very much just because I wanted. I probably did have a little bit of that more naive or petulant, like I want to know more about this than other people kind of aspect. But now it's more kind of like something to have in my back pocket in case I come across anyone else who likes hockey and likes to talk about these things, and then we have something to bond about. Right, well, yeah, and that part makes sense to me. I guess, uh, I guess my point on that is uh, that's knowledge. Yeah. But you can't get wisdom out of that, I don't think. Oh, well, you could probably get... No, nah, I take it back. You could get wisdom from understanding the narratives of players and teams and how they you know succeed and, and what parts of those things are meaningful to other people yes yeah and there are some stats that mean a lot to people and some stats that don't and that's interesting because that just means that they have a different focus right than others yeah okay you know? i i humbly retract my <laughs> my derision of hockey no, facts. No, i don't i don't think yeah fair <laughs> no i i 
even though it's hard to say exactly what it is that's different, obviously, I think intuitively, there's just something really clear about the difference between knowledge and wisdom. I would champion the idea that these are not zero-sum. I think it would be obvi- it's obvious folly to value knowledge and not wisdom. I think that there is a folly that's not as obvious about valuing wisdom only and not knowledge. I think that I, th- if, I think you you call that uh, simple mindedness. Perhaps, yeah. I think that well, and then I mean, there's we have thing like folk wisdoms, yes, right? Yeah. Like folk wisdoms, like <laughs> if I may bring up the one, follow your heart or yeah. trust what's in your heart. Yeah, yeah. Right? okay. Um, Good I point. think I think in scenarios like that, it is worth knowing how statistics works to have a better understanding about why what kind of value judgment you want to make about something i would almost say knowledge is kind of a moral it's not immoral or moral it's amoral it's oh like yeah a tool. it's a tool yeah, yeah i'd agree with that and so i i just think as you progress through life you can do more with more tools right oh yeah okay i can agree with that and and so differentiating that understanding of knowledge as opposed to ponytail guy's version of knowledge i think is worthwhile yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. <laughs> if for no other reason that it's fun to go to trivia nights. <laughs> like I enjoy that. No, no, no. It's its, its own kind of thing. It, it's you know? enjoyable to like see what you can pull out. Yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying. And the last little pause of note is engaging in the silliness of an unnecessary conversation, which is the elixir of friendship. <laughs> the unnecessary we conversation. We talked a lot about that in Crime and Punishment, but there's some really great unnecessary conversations. With, yeah, with Will and all, his buddies th- all throughout this, this. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I love that. So, I, I guess I would just close off too with, again, I think this is another, as it were, hero's journey of self understanding. Maybe would be the best way to put it. I think all the best stories are though. Sure. Yeah. I I think that the thing I remember the most about this movie is the scene where. Th- Will um Sean being very borderline unkind to Will <laughs> and Will's place in the world on that bench in the pond scene. And I I guess my takeaway from this movie is something like that's actually what helps Will the most. Yeah. The the scene where Sean is not placating him in the least. And he's saying, You're just a dumb fucking kid and you don't know anything, so I don't feel bad. But that's okay because you'll learn. <laughs> Yeah. Like that kind of attitude and that way of speaking, I think, is useful. And I think that there's like a there's a temperament, there's like a dominant temperament in our culture right now to shy away from talking like that. Especially to young people. You know, their fragile feelings. And I don't want to be insensitive because that's not the point. The point is that with someone like Will he needed that. That was actually the medicine he needed. And this is why, again, I think why Jordan Peterson sells out oh, yeah. arenas. I think that's exactly it. Is that he's not saying, you're great. He's saying, actually, there's so much wrong with you, but that's okay because it can be fixed. Yeah. He properly diagnoses and then gives a good treatment. Yeah. Yeah. And Sean does that too for will in this movie and i think the the important part of what sean does for will is also it can't be done by just anyone you can't speak you can't just randomly speak to people that way yeah Uh, i mean i think you have to be approaching it 
from a position where they believe you that that you are doing it for a good reason that you're authentic that you mean what you say and that you have some kind of well and a part of it is that sean gets will's attention with this hard diatribe because sean references the fact that sean's older than him and he has experienced a lot of these things in life and will has and then lays out experiences that he's had that he knows will hasn't had yeah and will can't really argue with that because it's just a fact right it's just a fact that sean has lived, I don't know, 25, 30 years longer than Will has and has that much more life experience to draw on. And I I guess I just, we shouldn't be scared of the well-intended, (laughs) good-hearted, electric shock therapy of hard words with each other. Yeah, I agree. Because it's actually what can break through to someone's heart. I think the evidence is out there. I'm sure it's out there in the psychological literature and it just seems out there. It it seems to jive with my intuition. I guess that's the best way I could put it for myself. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for listening. This has been another episode of really true fiction. My name's Luke Mason and mine's David Parker. And we hope that next time you go out into the woods, you have a positive attitude (laughs) and that you hunt around for some goodwill. (laughs) Yeah. Have a good one. Bye.